Hello, and welcome to The Learn It Podcast, a weekly conversation with global education leaders for people who are passionate about the future of learning. I'm your host, reporter and author, Jenny Anderson. Our guest today is Felix Oswald, the 26-year-old Viennese co-founder of GoStudent. The company is a digital one-to-one video tutoring platform now operating in 17 countries, and it's raised 291 million euros. Felix believes the biggest problem in education is a lack of access to great teachers. His solution is GoStudent, a platform that connects 7,000 tutors to 18,000 students via a subscription service at a price point he believes will broaden access to tutoring. That price is about 19 to 27 euros per 50-minute session. Innovation is a good thing. It lowers the gap in society and inequality. So the tutoring market needs more companies like ours that understand the mechanics behind the teaching experience, behind what makes good teachers, behind how can we help uh, children in a more efficient way. We need companies like us to then in the next step also uh, deliver that knowledge to the actual schools, to actual school teachers, show them um, how we can improve lessons and provide higher quality for lower cost. Felix and I talk about the many versions of the company he and his co-founder tried before stumbling on one that actually worked, as well as what tutoring looks like in different countries. Who knew that 90% of Greek high school students do after-school tutoring? I interrogate his controversial claim that online one-to-one tutoring is more effective than in-person one-to-one tutoring, and his belief that tutoring can reduce equity gaps rather than exacerbate them. Felix is a vocal proponent for using data to improve student outcomes. GoStudent analyzes its massive data stock of online lessons to try and crack what makes for effective learning. You may be surprised to hear what he's learned so far. I was. This week's episode is sponsored by Smart Technologies. We will hear a little bit more from them later. Felix, thank you for joining us. Hey, Jenny. Nice to be here. Let's start with the most obvious question ever. Did you have a tutor when you were growing up? I think actually the first tutor I had was my mother because I struggled a lot in learning Italian at school and she was able to speak and write Italian fluently. So yes, I was kind of lucky to have her at home. Didn't you tell me your father did some tutoring as well? Didn't he help you with your maths? Yes, that was my grandfather. But my grandfather, he was not so much of a, let's say, traditional tutor that helped me in the subject uh, mathematics itself, but he was really like very inspiring. He showed me what is possible to do with mathematics in real life. And this inspiration also led me later on to to study mathematics. And you studied mathematics at a very high level. Would you say that that inspiration came from school or from your grandfather? Or do you think it was maybe an innate ability? Honestly, I think it was primarily influenced by parents and grandfather, 100%. Let's get into the meat of those students. So you started this company. How old were you? You were 21? Yes, so we started six years ago. So it was right around 20, 21 years old. And how did it come about? This was something I kind of already discovered at school that education and the quality of education depends highly on the quality of the teacher. And I'm sure you can also remember like one or two super influential teachers you had when you went to school, either someone from the family or some proper school teacher. And it's one of the biggest problems in education on a global scale, lack of access to great teachers. And then six years ago, my brother, my younger brother, who was 15 at that time, he approached me and said, Felix, we can actually solve this problem of lack of access to great teachers. Let's start solving that by releasing a WhatsApp number so that actually his high school friends can start texting me on WhatsApp to to get the help that they need and yeah, try to be like a a good teacher. And did you enjoy tutoring? (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, everything that was math related, for sure. Everything that was more like on the biology, chemistry side, not, not, not so much. So that's when you discovered you had to build a company and scale it. So you didn't have to do everything. Exactly. We quickly tried to find people who had like a passion in their different fields and, and be able to help the kids. So your brother comes up with the idea. I hope he's got a good stake of equity in the company. Then what happens? I mean, the service quickly expanded. So I think in less than like two or three weeks, we already received like hundreds of questions on a daily basis. So it scaled quite quickly. And then together with my co-founder, Gregor, who I actually already got to know when I went to high school. So we actually shared some Vienna night experiences together when we were still still going to high school. He just finished his university degree in Switzerland, came back to, to Vienna, started also some first company ideas. And I showed him kind of this WhatsApp number and said like, look, I think we are onto something. We can actually build like a huge community of kids here who get the help that they need. This is really how we how we kicked it off then. And what did he do? Tell us a little bit about your co-founder. So my co-founder is someone who has like a extreme sharp mind when it comes to product itself. So how to build a product that people just love to use. And also being able to go into all the details and figuring out how can we set that up? How can we then manage and scale also the operations that we require to make that work? And I think this is just a very extremely nice and complementary skill set uh, to myself. And this is also why I think we can work together so well. So you start this in 2016 and you've got this WhatsApp group. You've got lots of people asking you questions and you continue to scale a product which is directed at students. Is that right? Yes, directed at students in the age of 6 to 19. But back then when we started it with the WhatsApp service, it was yeah primarily around 13 to 16, 17. And how did parents feel about the product? We were focusing 100% on the kids. So we were advertising towards the kids. The, the kids downloaded the app themselves. So we were not really in contact with the parents. But once we started to monetize the service once we try to actually get to the parents and convince them to pay, let's say, 10 euros per month so that their kid can ask a, a bunch of questions, we actually discovered and realized a lot of parents thought of it a bit like a cheating platform uh, that kids use to save time on doing their homeworks. And that was something parents struggled a lot with in paying for such a service eventually. And so how did you overcome that? It was from 2016 all the way till like end of 2018, beginning of 2019. We really tried so many different business models. We tried subscription services. We tried pay-as-you-go models. We tried really going after the parents directly. We even tried some advertisement models. It really didn't take off. And then what we realized, some of the kids, they were actually starting to write some teachers directly, asking them if they also offer a proper one-on-one -on -one live session. This was the moment where we realized, well, chat tutoring or chat help is not enough. In order to make like a proper business case out of it, we need to connect the kid and the teacher in a real one-on-one -on -one live online learning experience. So that was the first step bringing together the kid and the teacher in a Zoom meeting room, basically, or Google, Google Hangout meeting room. But that was not the secret sauce, because once we had this service and started advertising it to parents, parents were not interested at all, because they said like, well, this is maybe asynchronous. It's not a real life experience. I'm, I'm not interested. I want to have the person sitting next to me. And that was the moment we actually started to call the parents on the phone. And we really try to understand what is it what they need? What is it what their children need? And based on what they tell us, 
we explain our service then to them on the phone that they have this one-on-one -on -one live online learning experience. And that was really the Heureka moment because then parents started to at least give it a try. And once they saw how convenient and how good it is, they started buying the service. So it was really not even the discovery of one-to-one -one live tutoring. It was the comfort of hearing a real person at the other end of the phone explaining what this process was going to be. That's a, It's a very human connection in a very tech-enabled environment. Exactly. Because especially when it gets to education, it's very emotional for each and every parent out there. So in order to trust some education brands, these education brands, they first need to create this trust. They need to show that they have maybe some certifications that they have proven to be really helpful to lots of kids. But when you start an education service, you don't have anything of, of that available to you. So you need to find other ways to build this like human connection to this human bridge. And by calling the parents on the phone and giving them the comfort of listening to them, trying to understand what they really need, then they were also willing to pay for the service and make a well-working business model out of it. So we'll get to the tech and AI piece of this, but you now have 18,000 clients. I can't imagine that you're calling every single one of them. So what happens? Does it, do you get to a point where you don't have to do that anymore? At the moment, we are really calling each and every person that is signing up on one of our homepages or landing pages. So we, we do that with, with every person that signs up. Later on in the future, we have this like vision to build a number one global school. And we are also obsessed by building that trust, making it affordable to the, to the masses, and also show that we can produce the outcomes that kids need in order to build like a stronger foundation for the future. And I believe... Once we get there and with every step that we get closer to this mission, we will also be able in the future to reduce the amount of human effort required in that process, make it more automized because you have already built this trusted brand. I mean, that's kind of what the pandemic was. The pandemic was this sort of giant experiment in remote learning, which for the most part, in most places in the world, disappointed hugely. <laughs> and you can say it wasn't done as well as it could have been, and the teachers weren't trained as much, and you know, a lot of things happened. But it feels to me that the world's very excited to get back to more in-person and that social learning atmosphere. What makes you so sure that once you've built that trust, you can do that disintermediation of humans? Well, that's a really good point that you're bringing up, Jenny, because lots of parents were extremely dissatisfied with the experience of homeschooling. And one big part of the reason is for teaching kids like not one-on-one, -on -one, but like groups online, it's, it's super difficult. So online, the experience for learning something in a small group is still not as good as the life experience. But when it comes to one-on-one -on -one teaching, with a one-on-one -on -one teaching experience, the teacher has the ability to really individualize the course, the lecture, the project they're working together on in a really good way. And at the same time, in the one-on-one uh, -on -one setting, doing it online, you have access to a much bigger pool of great talent and of great teachers that fit to your child. So this is why the one-on-one -on -one online experience is superior than what you can do in the offline world. And we only focus on the afternoon market. So our service is complementary to the schools in the mornings. When you talk about this sort of number one global school, you're not talking about replacing school, you're talking about complementing it. It's the number one global after school or on top of school or next to school. 
Yes, at the moment we started with the afternoon market one-on-one -on -one live online teaching. That's our core service. That's what we're also going to expand in the future. And later on to get closer to this uh, mission of building the number one global school, we want to build the technological foundation and infrastructure that enables schools to become better schools, that enables school teachers to become better school teachers and to enable kind of each and every family that is out there for giving their kids a better and brighter future. Tutoring traditionally has been a source of inequity. It has been the rich can afford it and this will drive kind of gaps even further apart. You're hoping to close that by offering a, an affordable price point. But do we end up in an arms race where kind of the world is divided by those who have tutors and those who don't? If you actually look into a couple of the industries that have been revolutionized and have been improved over the last decades, you will see that once you get to innovation, you actually make it more accessible to the people. To give you an example, think of mobility. Traveling from A to B 20 years ago was much more expensive than it is today. I can get nowadays on a pretty cheap flight to go from A to B, much cheaper than it has been maybe 30, 40 years ago. If I think about the financial services industry, opening up a bank account, getting access to financial services has become much cheaper than it was maybe 40 years ago, where it was only reserved for a very tiny promille of the world society. But then when you look into education, for example, the tuition costs at, at universities, the prices has increased tremendously over, over the last decades. And this is also partly because there is, has not been so much innovation going on in, edu in education directly. One really nice example is 20 years ago, if you wanted to access the lecture of a Harvard professor, you actually had to go to Harvard and be allowed to study there to, to experience that. Today, you can go on YouTube and you can access a Harvard lecture completely for free from the comfort of your home. So innovation is a good thing. It lowers the gap in society and, and inequality. So to answer your question and coming back to the, to the tutoring market, it needs more companies like ours that understand the mechanics behind the teaching experience, behind what makes good teachers, behind how can we help uh, children in a more efficient way. We need companies like us to then in the next step also uh, deliver that knowledge to the actual schools, to actual school teachers, show them um, how we can improve lessons and provide higher quality for, for lower cost. So this is a great segue into sort of the data and the research. Part of what you're doing is studying these lessons to try to understand what makes a great teacher. What are the research questions you're asking and what are some of the findings you're coming up with? That's actually really one of the beautiful things about delivering a teaching experience 100% online because you can make it much more measurable. You can really track these things. And education has always been this black box. Nobody really knows, okay, why is this teacher now better? So now we can quantify it. One of the things we are asking ourselves is why is one particular math teacher delivering higher engagement rates in a, in a student, in a pupil than another math teacher? And often the answer to these questions is, is kind of very obvious once you analyze these sessions and once you analyze the, the way this one teacher is teaching versus the other teacher. And then we try to share this knowledge, how to enable teachers to become better teachers with other teachers that we have on our platform and therefore also the experience for the kid better. One of the key findings of, of the research that we have conducted so far, the experience, the overall experience of the lesson depends 100% on the teacher. 
the teacher is really the center of the experience and, and how engaged the, the kid is, is, is going to be. Of course, there are slight differences in different subjects, but overall, the teachers really like the center. One other thing that we found out is that the teachers who show more positive emotions during the lessons, also, this behavior is then reflected in the kids also showing much more positive emotions and much higher engagement. So when you have a teacher who is filled with positive emotions, shares like this enthusiasm for the subject, for the topics that they are discussing, then also the kid can experience these positive feelings. Another interesting finding has been speaking times. We analyzed in many sessions that when speaking time of the teacher and the kid in a one-on-one -on -one lesson are basically equal, then also engagement and also the outcomes are much better than when the teacher speaks 90% of the time. This is obvious, right? But now we can quantify it and therefore make it more measurable and, and, and be able to improve it. I have children I'm sitting here talking to you about an online video tutorial and you're talking about analyzing data and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, how is my child protected? How do you treat privacy? I mean, we treat privacy by all important standards that exist out there to make really sure that the kid, the parent, and of course the teacher can have a safe environment and they can trust this environment. But one thing to add here, which I think is very important, especially when it comes to data collection in education. When you think, and we talked about uh, quickly about these other other industries like mobility space, healthcare industry, etc. Imagine you drive your car and the, the car suddenly, I don't know, breaks down or you have an accident. If you're the car manufacturer, you want to know why did this happen? You want to understand, you want to create a proper diagnosis on why did this particular car break down? Or why is this other car more robust than the other car? Also in the, in the healthcare industry, you can only go to a doctor and get the treatment once the doctor is doing a diagnosis. The doctor will not treat you when they are not doing any sort of diagnosis first. But when we talk about education, I have often have the feeling we ignore that. We try to make statements without knowing or without doing any sort of diagnosis or any sort of, of data collection. So privacy in general is extremely important to create this safe environment, but you still need to be able to interpret and work with some sort of data because otherwise you can never come up with the right treatment when you're not able to do some sort of diagnosis. Right. But I just, as a parent, I would want to know that it was anonymized. Is that what you do with your data? Yes. Yes, of course. Okay. Now we're going to hear more from our sponsor, Jonathan Moore, engagement manager responsible for strategic alliances at Smart Technologies. You might know Smart as the maker of whiteboards, but Jonathan's here to tell us about some of the other smart things Smart is doing, including a self-assessment tool. Jonathan, tell me what a smart ed tech self-assessment tool can do. Using the assessment tool can help education institutions identify how to get the most from their ed tech and hopefully improve outcomes for their learners. Why should schools do one? Smart ed tech self-assessment tool is free and can help leaders address issues to uncovering perhaps why ed tech isn't having the desired effect to improve outcomes. It provides a framework to reflect and unite people and provides an area to focus. And what are the five main pillars that you are looking at? The five main pillars are leadership, professional development, implementation, infrastructure, and recently added, obviously, blended and hybrid learning. Is this just for US schools? It's used internationally. In fact, it's been used in Australia, Spain, UK, Middle East. It's actually been used by government in Europe to identify key areas of focus. 
Who takes part in the EdTech self-assessment? Is it just the leader? The leader would reflect and include the key stakeholders that are responsible for the areas of those sort of five pillars. So I think the strength is the fact of taking on board everyone's views and opinions and formulating that plan to help people move forward. Give me a sense as to how you came up with some of the questions that the assessment addresses. We've taken the assessment tool and we've linked it to research. And essentially, it's a synthesis of other well-known and trusted organisations such as OECD, NACE, UNESCO and Cassell. Do you have any evidence that this works? It's the responses of thousands of education institutions and able to identify a key correlation between those schools that have scored highly on the self-review and have improved outcomes. Results show that schools where technology capability uh, has been rated as high also report the best teaching and learning. And results, in fact, educators report highest level of capabilities were 10 times more likely to observe high outcomes. If as a school we do an assessment, how do we get to see the results? It's easily provided either individually as a school or aggregated organisational report can be obtained. The senior leadership then have simple identify areas of focus designed in a matrix. Jonathan Moore, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jenny. For more information, go to smarttech.com forward slash profile. Again, that's smarttech.com forward slash profile. Let's talk a little bit about finding your tutors. You've grown exponentially. You're now in 17 markets. You've got 7,000 tutors. Is that right? Yes, exactly. Yes. How do you find your tutors and what is your selection process? It actually differs a lot by country, which is also something I would have never expected when we started the business. Just to give you maybe one example, in, in a country like Germany, uh, most of the teachers start while still at university. So these are people who study, let's say, mechanical engineering, and they look for a side job because they have a, a passion for mathematics and physics, and they and they want to want to make an extra income. So that would be like a typical profile of a teacher, of a tutor that we have on the platform in, in Germany. When we go into a country like Greece, where the teachers in school actually do not get paid very well, a lot of the teachers in school they also become tutors in the afternoon market to provide after-school help to, to the children. So it differs a bit per country, depending on some local mechanics. What percentage of students in Europe get tutored? And what percentage, like what's the highest country and the lowest country? Of course, the data is a bit fragmented because a big part of the market is, is also like a shadow market where people don't talk about it or the neighbor of the neighbor comes to your house and, and you pay you pay them in cash. Uh, so a lot of the market is, is not, not properly captured. But based on our analysis that we did, in Europe, for example, you find 70 million kids in the age of 6 to 19. And among these 70 million kids, in all of the countries, you have more than half of the kids requiring some sort of after-school help. But from these 35 million kids who also who require this, this, this additional help, not everything is paid, right? So often it's maybe just the, the family who, who helps out or the friends of a family. But you can assume that around 30 to 35 billion euros is spent every year by, by that group on paid after-school teachers. So these are the numbers that we see in countries like Greece, for example, actually more than 90% of the kids in high school use private teachers, also partly because the school teachers themselves advertise and promote that quite actively. Whereas in the Nordics, for example, the rates are more in the range of like 10%. 
because they have themselves already quite advanced after school programs. What percentage of people who apply to be tutors become tutors? At the moment, we are around 5%. So very selective. And has that become more selective over time? Yes. I think it was March or April 2020, where we suddenly had four to five times more applications from teachers than we had uh, in pre-pandemic times. That was primarily because a lot of people who lost their maybe side jobs, maybe they was they were working in a bar or restaurant, and then suddenly the restaurant and bar is closed, but they still need some some additional income. They were looking for for uh, making money online, and online teaching, of course, is something that's kind of very obvious. So we had a lot more applications, and this also led to our requirements to get higher. And you have a subject test, a pedagogy test, and you have a sort of background check. Do you see that process changing dramatically? In the company, there's there's one department that is 100% focusing on the supply side, which starts with recruitment, onboarding, maintaining uh, the community, providing career opportunities for teachers. So yes, it's something we are continuously working on to make that process to become more efficient and also learn from our existing teachers who are already teaching kids for, for a longer period really try to understand and learn from them what is it, why they are so special, and can we take that knowledge and put this into the application already. What percentage of your tutors are teachers? Who are proper school teachers. The latest numbers that I have now top of my head from the from the summer months is actually around 15%. Oh, 15. Okay, so quite low. It's quite low. Of course, everybody can apply to become a teacher on our platform once they are like above 18. But we have really lots of people who just have like a passion for teaching, but they never had this idea of becoming a school teacher. So they want to do it as a side job. Oh, that's interesting. There's a lot of programs that sort of promote second career teaching, but this is really, you can do it on the side. You can effectively be a teacher while you continue with whatever career it is that you have. We talked about this earlier with the parents. They were worried that potentially this could be perceived as cheating or it was cheating. This is a big issue with Chegg. When you when you Google Chegg, the first thing that comes up is cheating. Like to Chegg is to cheat. It's actually become synonymous. So how do you make sure that what's happening is learning and tutoring and not homework help and cheating? It really starts with the selection of the teachers. If you have a great teacher, a person that is passionate about a particular subject, that person is the last person on earth who actually wants the kid just to copy something and not being interested in it. So this is something you can really like destroy that by hiring great people who, who have like a passion for their field. This is one of the biggest secrets around that. And something you brought up, Jack, I mean, it's hard to compare because Jack is, is, is focusing on an asynchronous service. So you pay a subscription and by paying that subscription, you have a access to a content database. Whereas in our case, you are paying money to get like a live lesson with, with a human being and not just access to a content database where you get the exercise solutions that you need. How do you think of yourself as different from other tutoring companies out there? One of the secrets is always since the beginning, we want to monitor the all customer journey. So from the first moment the parent knocks on our door, Till the moment that the kid really finishes school and enters the next stage, whether it's university, job, vocational school, etc. We want to own the all experience. So we are not just 
a company that connects you to a teacher and then we basically tell you, okay, now you need to coordinate everything with the teacher and we are just a payment processor. We really take care of the families, of the teachers and make sure that this experience is as smooth and as good as possible. This is the key differentiator. And you might ask, well, if this is the key differentiator, why is not anyone else doing that? Well, because connecting you to a teacher, when you think about it, is, is maybe not the most revolutionary idea that, that one can come up with. But the really tricky part on the one hand side is maintaining the operational infrastructure. So being able to scale supply and demand for one-on-one -on -one teaching in a really efficient and scalable way. So that's one key challenge that lots of the, the more traditional companies struggled with. And the other thing in education is education is very outcome oriented. So once you build the trust, once you can prove that the kid get certain outcomes, and once you make it also affordable to the masses, you build a key USB to any other future player that enters that playing field. What are your plans for expansion? What comes next? Right now, we are present in most of the European countries, but we are also just expanded to the LATAM countries, Colombia, Chile, uh, Mexico, Brazil. We also expanded to Canada. So just speaking geographically, Probably the U.S. will come next. Uh, some of the Northeast Asian countries, South Korea, Japan, Vietnam, Malaysia, Indonesia, Philippines. So there's still so many really interesting markets that are extremely untapped. They have a big offline education industry, but in the online world, they're still very underdeveloped. Also, South Africa is an interesting market. We normally answer this question by saying the only two countries which we don't want to enter are India and China. Because they're so saturated with tutoring companies? Yeah. So in India, you have already like uh, strong players who are doing a really good job. And in China, the regulatory framework is very challenging. That would be the understatement of the century right now. You've done very well on the fundraising front. Obviously, you've been a unicorn for a little while now. Do you get a sense that we're in an ed tech bubble? Are you part of that bubble? I think education or digital education has definitely experienced acceleration also in the mindset of investors. I remember quite well, maybe two and a half years ago, when I did first pitches with international investors, one of the first reaction has always been market size too small. There are no other like really big players. You can only build small and local companies there. And now you see more and more players who really prove to be international global players which also makes it more attractive to, to investors. So the fact that you can treat the tutoring market as a global market and not a parochial market, not a small local market, that has changed in the mind of investors? Yes, 100%. And also take it one step further. Take language learning, for example. You know, the way people learn languages is very different. So some people prefer the live one-on-one -on -one experience. Other people, they want to have the group lessons. Other people want to have the offline experiences. Other people, it's enough to work with Bubble or Duolingo. Every person has a different learning type. And you cannot just say that one learning method is the best for each and every person on this planet. So in order to build like this really large scale company, like to build like the largest education company in the world, you need to own that ecosystem. And for us, the way we think about it is, we have started with one-on-one -on -one live online teaching. We can scale that service on a global scale, but for the next phase of the company, apart from geographical expansion, we also need to build out that ecosystem. 
and truly understand every learning type and provide them the, the best services on top of that. And do you have any interest in going through schools? We have just acquired one company uh, called School Fox in Germany, Austria. They are present in more than 6,000 schools and it's being used by teachers to communicate with, with parents. So it actually replaces the old school way of communicating with parents where the kids uh, write something on paper and bring it back home. It's now a really modern and, and super uh, safe uh, communication channel that uh, teachers use with, with parents. And yes, it's it's present in a lot of schools. And in, for us, this also is part of this phase of building out the ecosystem and for the first time consolidating different educational efforts that happen globally and then together in the synergies that we build out, make it overall even better. What did the pandemic do for your business model and for online learning in general? So from one day to another, we received four to five times more teacher applications. Unfortunately, we have not received four to five times more parents demanding now online teaching for their kids. This is because of the school closures. There has been less pressure in schools. So because the schools were closed and it was a really new situation to each and every one, also the amount of exams was just uh, less than it has been pre-pandemic. So the, the demand for after-school tutoring services actually decreased when the first schools closed down. You can also watch that on Google Trends when you when you look for the, for the keywords. Now it's jumping back. Now when the schools are back open, people realize we actually lost quite a lot of, of, of knowledge in this period of the pandemic. Overall, we still were able to scale super fast in a lot of the countries. Acquisition costs, of course, got a bit higher in the, in the markets where the schools were closed. But overall, this kind of acceleration in mindset for digital services, I think, has been a benefit and catalysator for every type of digital company. And just to clarify one thing you said earlier, do you think that one-on-one -on -one online is as effective as one-on-one -on -one in person? It's even more effective, actually. Why? Because... On the one hand side, the pool of teachers is just bigger. So a, a kid, for example, who is, is not in a metropolitan city and has maybe a lot of people uh, around, they can access people from all over the country. So the pool of teachers is just bigger. The second thing is you can, for the first time, make the experience more measurable. So we as a platform, we can learn over time, is this teacher the right person for your kid or not? Maybe your kid tells you at home, I love this teacher. This teacher is so great. But maybe this is only because the teacher is always, I don't know, playing video games with the kid. So by really understanding this life cycle online, you can, you can measure this experience and you can make it better. By not making it measurable at all, how could you ever create any sort of diagnosis and, and improve it? Does it usually take a student two or three tutors to find the right one? Nowadays, for most of the new clients, we have actually experts for the first session, for the trial session, who try to even understand more what the kid really needs. And then when, once you have this first teacher, the teacher recommends another teacher who then takes over. So right now, on average, it's like, yes, two teachers to settle then for the final one. All right. The $64 million question, what makes a good teacher? passion for the subject really this this big enthusiasm and once you have that i mean it just it, it just makes fun listening to that person when he talks about that field all right three easy questions what's your favorite book about learning since i studied like uh, mathematics 
one book I really loved was the lecture notes of Richard Feynman, uh, his physics uh, lectures, when he, he did the course at the Caltech University. He was always saying also in the field of academics and university, to be like a good professor, you need to be able to explain complex things in very easy ways. And in his lecture, he's doing that actually in a, in a really nice way. I'm going to just say that's one of the most original recommendations we've ever gotten. I can't wait to share that with our listeners. What is your favorite book? Not about learning. I think one of my most favorite books, I think when it comes to storytelling, I just recently read it to my daughter, Harry Potter. Absolutely brilliant. And what are you binge watching? The one show that I really love since I'm a kid is this cartoon series South Park. I'm a big fan of, of South Park. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. And there's a lot of commentary on classrooms and on learning in there. So Yes, exactly, exactly. Felix, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure to talk to you and to learn from you. Thank you very much for the invitation. I was struck by a few things in this conversation. The first is how startups often take a while and a lot of failure to figure out a model that actually works. Go students spent years focused on chat tutoring and marketing to students, which just didn't work. When they switched to parents and figured out that connecting with parents and building trust actually mattered, things took off. I was skeptical about the claim that online one-to-one -one tutoring was better than in-person. But Felix made a few good points. With a bigger pool, students have better options. And with data about what constitutes effective practice, the company can help tutors improve their performance. I'm still on the fence about the role of tutoring in the education ecosystem more broadly. I know how powerful one-to-one -one learning is. It's obvious and intuitive, and it's also been proven by evidence. But so far, it's driven inequality wider. I like that GoStudent wants to broaden access, but is the price point low enough? I'm also excited by the prospect of what all this data can tell us about what makes a good teacher and a good learning experience. But I am worried about privacy, even though he assures me it's all anonymized. I feel like there's too much data out there as it is. Now how our kids learn math is gonna be part of the data stock too. My musings feel a bit academic. Tutoring is booming. And save for the extreme measures the Chinese government is taking to rein in out of school learning, the market for parents wanting to help their kids is seemingly bottomless. As Felix says, it's not too long before we use Duolingo for Spanish, Busu for Mandarin, GoStudent for Math, and Khan Academy for Chemistry, creating a bespoke cocktail based on child and platform and subject. I might add that as a parent, this exhausts me. Finally, I was a little surprised by Felix's answer about what makes a good teacher. He said passion. I would have thought for a company deep into data, the answer would have been more complex. I then asked my kids who their favorite teachers were and all the names they came up with were teachers who were deeply passionate about their subjects. It all feels very unscientific, but perhaps we humans just overcomplicate things sometimes. Thanks for listening. We'll link to the items mentioned in today's podcast in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it. And you can find out more about our community of global education leaders and upcoming meetups by joining our mailing list at learnit.world. In the meantime, stay safe, stay curious, and see you next week.